certain preacher got up to preach, before he started his sermon, he said that there was going to be a meeting of the board at the end of the service, right in the back of the auditorium. He preached a sermon, and after that, uh, the elders and deacons began to gather in the back of the auditorium. They noticed a complete stranger hanging around like he was there for the meeting. Everyone was kind of wondering what to do with him. Finally, the preacher said to him, Sir, can I help you? He said, Well, after that sermon you just preached, I thought you wanted all the board people to be back in the auditorium. Uh, <laughs> uh, I heard that was not the case last Sunday as Caleb preached. Uh, I, I don't know these, why these guys that I have preached for me, they have to preach such good sermons. Uh, when I get home, everyone is asking me one question, they, and that question is, hey, when are you going to be gone again? <laughs> I appreciate our staff, don't you? Each, each of them. I was gone for a good reason. Uh, I just happened to have a few pictures of uh, this grandbaby that has been born, and she can just flip through these. I think I have about four pictures. Uh, that is Mackenzie Joanna. We're calling her Kenzie. If you want to see more pictures, I have them with me. Just ask, and I'll gladly show them to you. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, we want to read verses 3 through 7. I'm reading from the New International Version this morning and using that throughout the, the message. He was despised, of course this is speaking about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we ourselves, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was brought upon him that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so He did not open His mouth. I want to speak to you this morning about the suffering of Jesus. First of all, his suffering was a part of God's plan. Keep in mind the prophet Isaiah, as he wrote these words, they were written 750 years before Jesus. He is describing the suffering that the Messiah would go through. And, and please understand this, this was not plan B, because plan A didn't work. This was plan A from long ago. And someone might ask, well, how long ago? Well, it goes back even further than Isaiah. It goes back 
to David who wrote of the suffering Messiah. David was 1,000 years before Jesus. Psalms chapter 22 is the most prophetic psalm of all. David wrote these words. Verse 1, in great detail, he described the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Those are the words of Jesus from the cross. Let me read to you verses 7 and 8 from Psalms chapter 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Maybe those words sound familiar to you too. They are the exact words spoken at the crucifixion scene. The chief priest spoke those words as they mocked Jesus. Let me read to you verses 12 through 18 of this same chapter. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet." I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. The details of this crucifixion scene of Jesus are spelled out for us in this passage that was written over 1,000 years before it happened. It was indeed the plan of God. I wonder though, was this plan of God in place even before David? Well, if you look at Scripture, you can be guaranteed that it was in place before David. Let me read to you Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. This is from the New Living Translation. Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, and this is what he said. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through Him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and His prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed Him to a cross and killed Him. Did you note his words there? It was a prearranged plan of God for Jesus to die. Well, just how far in advance was it prearranged? That's that's a question that that I want to answer, and I'll answer that question through Peter's writing, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 through 20. He says this, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. 
And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but he has now revealed him to you in these last days. Did you get that? Long before the world began, Peter said, this was the plan of God that Jesus would die. You talk about amazing love. You talk about amazing grace. This is it. God knew before He created the world that He would have to give up His Son to die for mankind, and yet He went forward with that plan. The suffering of Jesus was all a part of God's redemptive plan. Think about it with me. The crown of thorns was a part of God's plan. The beating that He took on His back and and on His face was all a part of God's plan. The nails in His hands and in His feet, that was a part of God's preordained plan. The pulling out of the hair of his beard, that was a part of God's plan. The spitting in his face, the crowd mocking him. There wasn't one thing that happened in those final hours of Jesus' life that took God by surprise. It was all a part of his plan. And Jesus had to be agreeable to it. Maybe you noted in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, it said this, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Think think about those words. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. All that happened late that Thursday evening and early that Friday morning and afternoon, all of that was in fulfillment of God's will. You see, the price for sin had to be paid and Jesus had come for this very purpose. And so as we think about the suffering of Christ today, this is where we are at in this long series that we have been in. It was all a part of God's plan for this to happen. Let me give to you a second point about the suffering of Jesus. It was undeserved. And the prophet made that very clear in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. It says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was without sin. He's the only person who can make that claim. He was tempted to sin, but he never sinned one time. He never cursed even once. He was never selfish even as a child. He never gossiped. He he never told a lie. He never disobeyed his parents even one time. He was the perfect child. He was the perfect teenager. And he became that perfect adult which we read about in the Gospels. He was the only perfect human being who has ever walked this earth. First Peter chapter 2 verse 22 says, He committed no sin. 
Not even one. And yet he suffered and died for sinners. All the pain that he went through, that was for you and for me. Isaiah 53 says, He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. It says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Do you want to know who deserved all of that which Jesus went through? Just look in the mirror and you'll see who deserved that. It was you, it was me who deserved that punishment because we are the ones who are sinners. We are the ones who have lied. We are the ones who have lost our tempers. We are the ones who have been impatient and unforgiving. We are the ones who deserve the wages of sin. And yet the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all, the prophet said. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, says it better than what I can say it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. That's what I call the great reversal. He got what we deserved, and we got His righteousness. And the hope of heaven, the promise of heaven, if we have trusted in Him. Let me give to you a third point about the suffering of Jesus. It was, and this, this was a word that I, I just, all I could, could come up with to describe what His suffering must have been like. His suffering was unimaginable. Do you know where his suffering really started? Not Calvary. His suffering started in Gethsemane. If you read Matthew's account and Mark and Luke, you get a feeling that, that maybe even the battle between the light and darkness was in Gethsemane rather than on Calvary. The battle in Gethsemane was more emotional and spiritual. It was in Gethsemane that he prayed this prayer. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. You see, he was human. And he knew the pain and the suffering that lay ahead of him. He knew it was going to be unbearable pain. And that's why he experienced such distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to the Gospel writers as they try to put into, the wor into words what Jesus was feeling while He was in that garden. Matthew 26, 37 says, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. If you're reading from the New American Standard Bible, it says this, He began to be grieved and distressed. And this is what He said to His disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus felt such a burden in that garden that He felt like He was going to die. 
in the garden. It was the burden of sin that he was feeling. Think with me. He was was experiencing the heaviness of sin all the way back to the sin of Adam and Eve to the very end of time, the last sin that will be committed before he comes. He was paying the price for all of that sin between those two times. Now, I I know how heavy one sin can feel. And you do too. Because if I have hurt one of my family members and I am in tune with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will be talking to me and there will be a heavy burden on my heart and it will be there until I get it right with with that person whom I have hurt. That's just one sin. Can you imagine the heaviness of of all of mankind's sin from beginning of time to the end of time? Every murder. We are talking about every act of adultery. We are talking about every sin of bitterness and hatred and greed and anger. And your sin would be added there and my sin would be a part of that too. It's no wonder that the Savior felt overwhelmed to the point of death as he was in that garden. Mark 14.35 says, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed. Now, if you have been ever in an emotional crisis, you know how that can just zap your energy. Whether it's, whether it's a, a long battle with illness, whether it's the loss of a loved one, whatever it is, you know that when you are in an emotional crisis, it can zap your energy. Jesus was in the middle of such a crisis. He was feeling the heaviness of sin, but not only that, He was also knowing the punishment that would soon be inflicted upon Him and Know this, he was understanding what was about to happen, that he would be separated from God his Father for the very first time ever. And I think it was that more than anything. And this burden of sin that was getting to him. He could hardly stand the thought of being separated from his father. He had never been separated from his father. Oh yes, he had left heaven for a short while, but still he enjoyed the oneness and the fellowship with his father in spirit. But he knew that as he took on himself the sins of the world, that God would turn away from him. That's why there was such black darkness as He hung on the cross. That's why the cry to God, why have you forsaken me? He had never known this separation from His Father and it was about more than what He could even think about. I I want you to understand 
brothers and sisters, that this is a part of what hell is going to be. It will be separation from God the Father. His presence will no longer be with the person who is in hell. His light will be gone. His grace will be gone. His goodness will be gone. His love will be gone. It will be darkness in hell that is blacker than night. If you have ever been in a cave, and and as you are in the depths of that cave, they turn the lights off, and it is so black in that cave that you cannot even see your hand in front of your face. That's the blackness of hell. Because the light of God will not be there. You talk about darkness. You talk about fear and panic and loneliness. There will be no parties in hell. There will be no grand reunions in hell. There will be no family gatherings in hell that bring joy and happiness to to people. Because hell will be one dark, lonely, terrible place. And Jesus knew that that's what was laying ahead of him. And he was dreading it. That's why we can say Jesus went through hell as he hung on the cross for us. Because he experienced the separation of God the Father and the true darkness and heaviness of sin. Luke twenty two forty four says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's a condition that doesn't happen very often. You can look it up on your internet. I did even this morning, just did some extra reading on it this, er- this morning early. It's a condition called hematidrosis. It's simply a condition where the capillaries of the forehead actually mix with the sweat glands and they burst due to stress. This condition only happens under tremendous stress. It's a very rare condition. Jesus already was feeling the heaviness of what lay ahead of him. He was struggling with it all. But I want you to notice something. As he leaves the garden under armed guard, the struggle doesn't seem to be the same for him after this time. He's focused. He's ready. He's determined to do the Father's will. He's understanding that there absolutely was no other way. And He is submissive to the will of the Father. The physical suffering is what happens after this point. 
see, up to this point, it has been emotional suffering and, and spiritual suffering. Now, he is to endure the physical suffering. And it's all in payment for our sins. The, the fist to the face. The pulling out of the beard. I really cannot even begin to imagine this kind of treatment to another human being. There was the beating that he took upon his back. I want to read to you this morning from Mark Moore's account about this beating that he took on his back. I quote, Flogging was a gruesome punishment which these soldiers seemed to enjoy. Their inhumane and indecent treatment of Jesus springs not so much from anger at Him personally, but at His people who had caused so much trouble for the Romans. Does that that sound familiar to any people who were upset with the Jews? (laughs) To these soldiers who are merely peacekeeping forces in an occupied territory, all this was mere sport. Like a cat who has caught a a mouse, the, the joy is not in the kill, but in the torture of its victim. Flogging was such a horrible punishment that it was illegal to flog Roman citizens without direct edict from Caesar. The victim was tied to a post or hung from a wall. Either method drew the muscles tight across the victim's back. The soldier would then use a flagellum, also called a cat of nine tails. It was a short wooden stick with often nine thong strands attached to it. At the end of each strand was tied something sharp, such as bone or metal or glass or metal balls. The purpose was not to lash out quickly so as to inflict welts. Rather, the soldier would attempt to rake the victim's back with the sharp objects, literally shredding the muscles of the back, the buttocks, and legs. The Jews limited the lashes to 39. The Romans, however, were hindered only by their animosity and endurance. So much muscle was left shredded and hanging that the victim's vertebra were exposed and sometimes even his intestines. Oftentimes, the tails would whip around the victim's face, gouging out his eyes. It's not surprising then that flogging alone was lethal about six out of ten times. Those that survived were usually carried out on a stretcher with permanent mutilation. And we haven't even got to the crucifixion yet. Not to mention the crown of thorns that they put on his head. Mark 15, 19 says, Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. There are two lines from Isaiah's pen that I want to point out to you. The first is from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14. It says this, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred 
beyond human likeness. You say, Kevin, why in the world are you, why are you preaching this sermon today? I want us to know the price for sin. We need to know the price that Jesus paid for us. It was absolutely unimaginable what he went through for you and for me. Did did you see that? His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. What What is the prophet saying there? This is what he's saying, that he was not even recognizable when the soldiers were finished with him. He didn't even look like a human being at that point. And how in the world he was walking to the cross, I don't know. It tells you one thing. He was one strong person. He was no wimp. Let me tell you another line from the prophet. Chapter 53, verse 3. It says, He was like one from whom men hide their faces. What that simply is saying is this. People would look at him and they would turn away. They couldn't bear to see it. And maybe that's why Pilate says, Behold the man. You see, Pilate was for a while trying to steer the crowd away from this idea of crucifying Jesus. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that he was being delivered up because of envy of the chief priest. And so several different times you hear Pilate saying, He's innocent. I find no fault in him. Let's beat him. Let's have him flogged instead of crucified. Usually it wasn't both. It was one or the other. And so Pilate is trying to steer the crowd away from crucifying Jesus. He has him beaten to, the, to within an inch of his life. And he stands him before the people. And he says, look at him. Behold the man. Don't you think he's had enough punishment? But the plan of God had to be fulfilled. And the people's thirst for His blood was not yet quenched. And so, we have the cross. It was a slow, agonizing death. He was suspended between earth and and space. For all the world to see. The price for sin was a very, very high price. 
And I, I could read to you this morning a long piece about the crucifixion. I'm not going to do that because of our time. I just I think we can safely say that the suffering of Jesus was unimaginable. And I'll give to you one more point. The suffering of Jesus calls for a response from us. Doesn't that only make sense if he gave of himself to us in this degree that we should give of ourselves back to him? John 3.16, would you say it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right there is our response that God is looking for. That we would believe in Him. That we would believe in Him as the Son of God. That we would believe in Him as the one who died for our sins. And, and that He was the one who raised up from the dead. That's what He's wanting as a response from us back to Him. But, but understand that as we talk about believing in Jesus... It's more than just head knowledge. It's more than just acknowledging, yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God and I believe He raised up from the dead. It's more than that. God's definition of belief is this, that we would surrender our heart and our life to Him. That it would not just be here in our mind, but that it would be here in our heart. That whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says this, For the love of God, the love of Christ, controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. There's the response that God's looking for from each of us. He died. Jesus died. Therefore, we die. We die to self. We die to sin. We die to this world and we make him the Lord of our life that's the response that he's looking for and that's the response that he deserves and so my question as we we come to this invitation time today is simply this what will your response be to the suffering of Jesus you see, everybody here responds in some way to the suffering of Christ. Let me tell you what those responses are. Some try to ignore it. They don't even want to deal with it. They just put it out of their mind. They put it out of their head. I don't want to deal with it. So they try to ignore the suffering of Jesus. That You cannot do that. God will not let you do that. To ignore the suffering of Jesus is to say no to Him. It's one and the same. 
There's, there's another response, and some, some would just want to do this. Just shrug their shoulders, not take it seriously, be lax about it. But under, that's, that's not an acceptable response either. God will not let you do that. That response is the same as just ignoring Him. There's only one of two responses that, that God will let you have. And that is, you say no to Him, or you say yes to Him. Those are the only two responses that you have. And to say no to Him is to... It's, it's your option, but you are accepting the consequences. To say yes to Him, that's, that's the good response. That's the response that God really wants you to have. To believe in Him, to repent of your sins, to be baptized into Jesus, and then to live for Him wholeheartedly until the day that you die. What will your response be? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I understand this is a very sobering message today. But it needs to be. It's not something that we can ignore. It's not something that we can close our eyes to. It's what happened on Calvary and Gethsemane was the payment for our sins. And so though it is sobering, we rejoice. We sing hallelujah. We sing praise God. We are thankful because we would all go to hell without what happened on Calvary. And so may we embrace the cross. May we embrace the Savior. And may we go forth from this place thankful people. Understanding the payment for sin was a very, very high price. And we are thankful that we don't have to pay the price because it's already been paid. Hallelujah. What a Savior.